This is the Midweeks. Hello, and welcome to a late August episode of the Midweeks with Pastor Rob. Uh, I missed a couple of weeks. I apologize for that. I was having some technical issues, and uh, I think I've got them all worked out. But in the meantime, uh, life has provided some more interesting news to discuss and to think about from a biblical perspective. And so I want to start off today just by talking about um, a barn fire that happened here recently. In the last couple of weeks in my neighborhood, a barn fire happened and about 800 dairy cows, cows for producing milk, were killed in it. And it prompted what I think is a first for for our neck of the woods here, um, a kind of semi-protest, semi-memorial for the cows where uh, people came out, not to support the family, but actually in kind of protest for what happened and to remember the cows that had lost their lives. And one of the things that's making me think about this is I actually heard a news interview a few weeks ago um, where there's somebody who is an, actually an advocate for, uh, I don't even know what you'd call it, like barn animal rights or something like that, because in Canada there are tens of thousands of animals that that die probably each year in barn fires, um, whether, whether it's a chicken barn or a pig barn or a cow barn, I guess. Um, if the barn catches fire, it's very hard to stop it, I think. I think that they burn very quickly, and the animals tend to perish when that happens. Um, and so this has become an issue for some advocates, and they're looking for change. And so I just I want to think through this um, Christianly to start off with here. Okay, why would people be grieving the loss of barn animals, animals that are being raised for food, uh, whether it's chickens or pork, animals that are being raised for milk, like a dairy cow, animals that are being raised for eggs, like a laying hen? Why is it important to advocate for these things, for these people? Or where's where's this coming from? Because um, a barn fire is tragic, you know, and it does impact people. If this is a family business, it will impact them. Even if they're insured, there's going to be a pretty heavy cost for the loss. And it's just traumatic for anybody who is investing their life in food production that involves animals to have a, a catastrophe happen is, is just hard. But why would somebody come along and want to protest the catastrophe? Um, and I, so I just want to question it. Okay. And so one of the things I do is I always go, okay, where's this worldview coming from? And I, I rarely find that we have a consistent worldview in the West, in the English-speaking world. Um, I don't think it's from a Christian perspective that the protests would be coming from, uh, necessarily directly. Uh, a Christian perspective can't have some stuff to say about this, but I don't think that, that this is like a church group doing this. Um so you just ask, okay, so why are the lives of these animals important? Let's assume that there's some kind of atheism or agnosticism or evolutionism as kind of being the main worldview here. Why is um, a barn with animals burning down a, a moral wrong that needs a memorial and a protest? Because when there's a protest happening, they're essentially declaring a practice evil, right? It's a moral wrong. It's an evil. It needs to get stood against and changed. That's why we're there. Um, otherwise, it's another business, and why even show up? So there's there's some kind of evil being protested, but why? 
if evolution is true and that um, life exists just to uh, eat and feed and breed or feeding and breeding that's you know evolution's all about life wants to feed and breed and then then die okay so is it because they weren't eaten um, that they were supposed to be feeding people but because of a fire they weren't feeding people they they just died is that is that the catastrophe i don't think so um, but even if you have a consistent evolutionary worldview then you've got to admit that most of these animals that are dying are actually feeder types. So in you know your high school science class, biology class, they talk about the circle of life. They're feeders and eaters, right? So there's carnivores like wolves and lions and people who are higher up the food chain, and they um, tend to eat animals that breed a lot and are feeders like rabbits and chickens and um, herds. They have lots of uh, offspring because they know they're going to get eaten by other animals that eat them. And so um, isn't this just the circle of life? Uh, and maybe it's just because when a barn fire happens, so many of these creatures die at once that it's is grievous. And it, it is. Like, I admit it. I'm not, I'm not happy about it. And I don't even might want to come off as being hard-hearted about it. I'm just trying to think through worldviews. Uh, the reason why if a, a chicken barn burns down, you have like 10,000 chickens dying is because they're so useful to people. That's the only reason why they're there. They're there to feed people. And if they weren't useful to people, we wouldn't raise them. We wouldn't have a barn full of them and the barn wouldn't burn down. But it's not like if they weren't being raised for food or to be useful to people that they would just go off and live happy lives. They'd just be out in the woods somewhere, out in a field somewhere, getting eaten by something else. It's kind of just what they do in this fallen world. Um, sheep would just get eaten until they became really important to people for like wool and meat and we raised herds of them they would just you know wander around the wood the woods getting eaten by wolves and uh, maybe dying of disease like uh, sometimes I think there's this this underlying assumption that if an animal was not being raised to be useful for people it would be off living a noble life somewhere but it's just an animal isn't it? In, in an evolutionary way, it's just competition. It's out there trying to feed and breed. And if it's not being useful to things higher up the food chain, then then why is it even there? Um, so, I, and again, I'm not trying to be hard, hard or dismissive, but like from an evolutionary point of view, the, these animals exist to be eaten. Isn't that true? And if human beings can find them useful so that they're actually... Um, bred and spread and they they have an existence in this um where does the moral right and wrong come beyond that uh, now maybe there isn't a consistent worldview behind there maybe just people hear about a large number of, number of animals dying and they just don't like it they want to do something about it so they decide to do something about it. i haven't yet heard about a protest about a, like a pig barn burning and it could be because pigs aren't cute animals they're they're actually like really stinky and mean. Um, like a pig will kill you <laughs> if it gets the chance. It'll knock you down and trample you. A pig will eat you. A pig, if it's hungry and you know you pass out or you die at its feet, it, the pig has no problem eating you. And so um, maybe people, it's a little bit harder to come and remember the passings of pigs. But cows are kind of cute and they're a bit winsome. They're slow moving. They, they seem... Uh, safe and uh, and hey so there you go maybe that's easier to like um, so 
is is there actually a non-Christian worldview that makes it a real tragedy when a barn burns down, taking its barn animals with it? Can can you actually prove that it's a morally bad thing that needs to be stopped, or these animals need to get protected? Worldview explains a lot of this and why people would do this um, and why people would care. So from a biblical perspective, God made um, animals and people, and he made them different, but he made them similar as well. So from the Genesis story, you have animals and people both being made from the ground, but people are different. They're made in the image of God, whereas animals aren't. And there's a lot that entails with that. Um, We're obviously more intelligent generally. We have a sense of community, a sense of right and wrong, um, and a capacity to relate to God that he hasn't given his creatures and his other creatures. And so there is this thing where we do have something in common with animals. And if you read the second chapter of Genesis, there's this whole scene where God makes Adam name all the animals. And whatever he named them, um, that was their name. And what's going on in that story where God brings all the animals to, to Adam, among other things, is that God is making these animals subject to Adam's kingdom. And there's other places in Genesis that talks about this. So this isn't the only place, but he's, he's saying, these are your subjects. You're actually being given these things to rule over and care for, to make them fruitful, to help them multiply, to help them fulfill their purpose in the world. And there is a connection through that, similar to how, um, you know, a, a prime minister is connected to the country he, he is elected over, a king has an intimate connection to the people he rules over. Well, humanity is meant to have a connection to the the creatures that we're given to rule over. We're supposed to be here for their good. And they're supposed to be here for our good as well. And so there's, before the fall, there's this really intimate connection between um, humans and animals. Though there's also a differentiation, which is really important to remember as well. We're not the same as an animal. A human being is not the same as a cow, and a human being's life is more valuable to God even than a cow. And you can see that in the rest of Genesis, especially the end of the Noah story, where God is instituting capital punishment so that, you know, if a, if a human, and even an animal, is taking human life, um, its life is supposed to be ended because the blood of man is precious to God. God is Man is made in God's image, and so something that spills his blood unjustly is meant to be stopped. Whereas there isn't this sense of, you know, if someone kills an animal, there should be retribution. Um, so we're different, but we're connected. And so this human sense we have to want to be a protector of animals um, is actually a good thing. It's, it's, it's leftovers of part of our our being made in the image of God. And that image is tarnished and things have changed from those early days of Genesis. But I think that's the root of it. You know, we're actually meant to have um, helpful relationships with many animals. Now, after the fall, some animal relationships are just dangerous for us, right? Like you don't want to, there's a reason that the lions and tigers are behind bars at a zoo. They'll kill you. And so part of being a steward in the earth is actually to constrain the dangerous parts of the animal kingdom. Um, and that's important. We, we cage crazy animals. You, 
you, we, uh, if the bear shows up in town, people show up to try to tranquilize it, move it somewhere else because a bear is dangerous. Um, and even, you know, as I think about this stuff, we're talking a lot about kind of the more complicated or more uh, advanced animals, if you want to talk about like that. But there are lots of types of life that um, we kill regularly just to survive, like bacteria. Almost all of us have probably taken antibiotics because those things will kill you. You get an infection, it'll kill you. Your body is regularly fighting off viruses, and those are life, um, lower down the complexity scale, but it's still life, and we need to kill them or else we're dead. And so um, there, after the fall, we're in this relationship with animals where we're supposed to take care of them well when they're useful, and we're supposed to steward them well, and we're also supposed to constrain the damage they can do to the world and to humanity. And so we're in this stewardship role. And God in Genesis, I think it's chapter um, 12 or 11, the end of the Noah story again, he gives animals to human beings to be able to eat for food. And as the story kind of goes, it's because Noah rescued all the animals through the ark. He's given an extra layer of stewardship over them to be able to use their lives to sustain his life. And it's not meant to be a bloodbath and it's not meant to be hard-hearted, but it is in a way supposed to say, you know, in this world of death, um, animals can sustain human life by their death. We're all going to die someday, but human beings can steward the life of animals so that even when animals die, they can sustain human life by providing food. And this is a good thing. Maybe it's not a great thing, but it is a good thing. It's a permitted thing. And so it's no crime in God's sight to farm animals for food. Um, but there's lots of worldviews that are going to say it is. And I think as um, our culture falls more and more away from its Christian roots, it's going to have a harder time doing two things. Number one, actually valuing any life. And number two, because we can't distinguish human life as being different than animal life, we're going to have a hard time not trying to give animal rights this, the same kind of status as human rights and just apply the Canadian Charter to animals. Well, the cute ones at least. And so it, we're going to get more and more confused over these things. Um, so I was thinking about this and I was thinking, like, here's a, an example of how it's very hard for us to be consistent about these things. Okay, so in one sense, no life is better or worse than any others. Like in a purely evolutionary sense, no life is better or worse. There's just kind of the ongoing competition. And even when we think about being higher up the food chain, that's an imaginary scale that people have made up to talk about some ideas of like complexity or teeth or whatever. Because you could say human beings are at the top of the food chain. True, but again, bacteria and virus, viruses take us out. Um, before medicine advanced, you know, a plague could take out half of the population of a country. So you don't look super up the food chain when a virus or a plague or a bacterial infection can kill you so easily. Like we die just as easily as anything else. And so there, that whole idea of being higher up the food chain is kind of made up. But think about this. Okay, let's say a bunch of people drove out to a farm to go and have this memorial protest. But on their way out, they, they killed, let's say, a thousand mosquitoes, flies, and dragonflies and grasshoppers just by driving their cars. You know, you're driving down a road and the grasshopper jumps the wrong way and all of a sudden he's stuck in your grill. Okay, so why, why is it worth killing 
a thousand bugs to come out to remember 800 cows. Like, how does the math work there? And of course, there is no way to say that a cow's life is more important than a grasshopper's life. And so if you really are committed to valuing all these lives, then then you shouldn't use back, uh, antibacterial medicine. You shouldn't use antiviral soaps. You shouldn't have a car because it kills so many bugs. I shouldn't have a fly swatter because it's all just life. But, but this is actually an impossible way to live. And I think the Christian worldview gives us a much better way of actually functioning in the world where we're actually supposed to honor God's creatures and remember that we're stewards of all of God's earth, the best of us at our best, following Christ. We are meant to steward the world and its resources well, but to a goal of honoring God and enjoying what he's made, as well as protecting human flourishing. If animals aren't here to help human beings, um, then why? We, we tend to not even keep them around. We just destroy them. But if an animal is good for helping human beings, we should steward them and they should have um, protection and, and be useful to us. And at the same time, it's good to have restrictions on human activities that would um, cause undue death and suffering in the animal world. And so um, these things come from human perspectives. We're supposed to be stewarding life. And I think that apart from God and apart from his word, a lot of these human impulses, whether it's to devour animals thoughtlessly or to express cruelty towards animals in sin or to uh, kind of overvalue animal life at the expense of human life or even in a way that you would never uh, honor the human dead, like would people who go to a barn burning memorial uh, actually go to a pro-life rally as well. Well, how come human babies don't have the same worth of being remembered as some cows in a dairy barn? What makes sense here? So in a human perspective, you have, it's God's creation, and it should be honored and stewarded well in order to glorify God. And human beings have a unique role in the world. And so we're meant to be that, that role of stewardship. And at the same time, Animal life is meant to serve human beings as they serve God, which includes being able to use animals to sustain human life as well as human beings restricting animals so that they don't threaten human life. That is a, a fairly clear Christian worldview. And we can live like this until Christ returns. And then we'll see what he does then. I, I do wonder what um, dinner time's going to look like, if there's still going to be um, the eating of animals in the new heavens and the new earth. And if there isn't, you know what? I won't complain at all. Just one, one minute with Jesus is going to be worth an entire lifetime of, of bacon and hot dogs. And so I'm not worried at all about what that's going to be like. I think we need some Book of James. I've got a fever, and only a Book of James will cure it. So I think we're at verse 12. Remember, we're talking about James. James is convinced that a Christian can always show their faith, no matter what their circumstances are. Um, the Christian faith is three things. You can summarize it and look at it from these three perspectives. The Christian faith is truths to be believed. It is convictions to be felt and feelings to have of love and joy and trust. And it is also 
Number three, things to do. It's actions to perform. And, you know, these are perspectives. It's not chopped up into individual things. But you can look at the Christian life by what are we meant to believe? What are we supposed to feel and have convictions about? And what are we supposed to do? And they're all connected. And so James is very focused on the do side. And he is convinced, you know, if you believe the truth and if you are convicted in your heart about the truth, then show it. And he gives us lots of ways to show it. it, And he starts off by giving us uh, tools for showing our faith when it's difficult to do that so that we have to learn perseverance. And what we've been saying is that this is a great place to start because the Christian life is difficult by nature. And it's always easy, well, it appears to be, sometimes it's not, but it can be easy to do the right thing when it feels good and when it looks like there's going to be a great reward. But it's when it's troublesome to do what's right, then that's when we tend to quit. And so James is working on our perseverance so that we will be committed to doing the right thing, even when it's hard. So start in verse 12 of chapter 1. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Okay, so what's going on here? So he's talking about the steadfastness, the perseverance under trial, and he's saying you're going to be blessed. So he's giving us motivations to persevere. You're going to be blessed. You will be blessed if you persevere through this. So when you're in a trial, don't think, ah, if I persevere through this, it's just going to cost me. Why don't I just quit and go watch a movie? He says, no, if you persevere through your trial, you will be blessed. And he said, ultimately, the person who's steadfast and stands through the test will receive the crown of life. This is what he says here. So he's thinking about, ultimately, you know, if you don't quit on Jesus, Jesus will give you a crown of life. He's going to honor you for all of eternity in his presence. But at the same time, there are little rewards throughout life as well. As we persevere through trials that last a minute, or an hour, or a day, or a week, or a month, as we persevere, persevere through it, God is a rewarder of those who persevere. And that's the truth, and James is encouraging us. So instead, though, how people often fall off their horse when they're facing a trial is we start to think God's after us in this. He's not for us, he's after us. And so he's saying one way that that can express itself is people say, oh, God is tempting me here. He wants me to fall. He wants me to fail. Oh, God is tempting me with evil. How could I ever persevere when God himself has put me in such a bad situation? I don't even think he wants me to win. I think he knows that I'm weak, and I think he knows that I'm, I'm not going to make it. And so he's given me the situation. He's forced me to do it, and I can't do this. And Oh, I'm going to just fall apart. And so he says, God's not like that. You're like that. God's not tempted by evil. You're tempted by evil. Don't you know that the problem is that you just have desires that want what God doesn't want? And if you give in to these desires, they'll produce sin, and that sin will produce death. And so there's a contrast here between the crown of life and the sin-producing death. Um, 
that you have in this little passage here. And this is about perseverance. Do you want to live or die? Uh, live, I think. Okay, then persevere with your trust in God. He's not against you. Don't believe that lie. Don't you know that people who tell themselves that God is against them, they really just say that because they'd rather be sinning than re resisting the temptation? What? No. Yeah, it's true. Why do we start accusing God of bad things? Well, it hurts, but at the same time, we don't want to do what's right. We don't want to show our faith. We want to lay down our faith to find some kind of comfort, lay down our faith to find some sort of way out that isn't God's way out. And so if we can think the brain snakes of accusing God of testing us, and if God's testing you, how can you ever succeed? Then it gives, gives us a rationalization. It gives us a justification to quit and to give into our sin, but then that's just death. So James is saying, um, count the cost, persevere, life, uh, look for reasons to quit, death. And then he goes on and says, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers, every good and perfect gift is from above. Okay, I love the do not be deceived lines. I got this from John Piper. He, he says, you got to read the do not be deceived lives because the, the apostles knew people well. And when they say, don't be deceived, they say that when we want to be deceived. <laughs> it's a good rule of thumb. It says, don't trick yourself. Don't let yourself be deceived. Don't deceive yourself. They say that not when it's easy to, to find the lie and resist it, but when we want to be deceived. I want to be deceived. I don't want to believe that good gifts are coming down from God all the time. And I don't want to have to remember that God doesn't change and that when he saved us through the word of truth in that moment of when we knew we were loved and forgiven, that he's never changed from that. I want to think thoughts that make it easy to quit. And so he says, don't be deceived. God has not changed. And he, every good gift that you've ever gotten has come down from the Father who does not change. And remember that you were saved by him. He took the initiative with you to save you. Don't don't start just saying he's taking the initiative to destroy you with temptations. Remember that he took the initiative to save you through his word. And he's transformed you to a person who's just here to fail in testing into a person who is meant to be a first fruit of his creatures, to be especially belonging to him, to be an extra special treasure, a kind of treasure that perseveres through trials so that God gets the glory of having a child, a son or a daughter who perseveres in his name and that he can reward with life and good things. So that's James for you. Let's do our faith. We all have trials. Oh my goodness, the trials. But they do not come from a God who wants to see us fail. They come from the Father who sends us good things daily and has chosen to save us by his own grace for his own glory that we might belong to him and we can trust him and we can resist our sin in any trial and he will at the right time give us the crown of life all right my friends be blessed uh, pray for me as you're able and remembering hey you know what these podcasts are only as good as you ask god for them to be so pray for a blessing for me as i as i work these things out tell your friends be blessed and have a great weekend